You're listening to She's Got Drive podcast, the podcast that inspires women to be the driver in their own life with the life and stories of black women with drive. And I'm your host, Shirley McAlpine. I'm a business consultant, an executive coach, and a leadership facilitator working with people and organizations to live their lives by design and not default. Welcome back to another episode of She's Got Drive. And my guest this week is going to be Charlene Brown who's the Executive Director of the Partnership for Responsible Financial Inclusion. So I'm excited to introduce her to the podcast this week. But before we meet Charlene, there's a couple of things I want to do. Firstly, I really want to thank everyone for who's been in contact with me and sending me messages about being back and um, last week's episode, which lots of you really appreciated. And you know, I I just, I can't tell you how it makes me feel when I get that because it makes all the work worthwhile. It was, uh, as you know, it was a very emotional episode and, and yeah, so I appreciate you being in contact. I've decided to read out a review of the week. Um, I know there's some other podcasts that are doing, I think it's a really great idea. If you give me a five-star review, I'll read out. Um, I'll choose a review to read out. The reviews allow me to the podcast to become more popular and be more available so I really urge you to write a review a five-star review and see if you can get a review of the week and um, and help us grow the podcast so more people can listen the review from a listener this last week in relation to last week's podcast I wanted to um, share this five-star review it's from this one SG The definition of success is, in my humble opinion, spot on, as was Duana's advice to her nine-year-old self. I love this podcast, have listened to it three times this morning, and know that it will be on again soon. Sharing it with some friends shortly. Much thanks, Mrs. McAlpine, for your work, and to Duana Williams for all that she shared. And big thumbs up and applause. Thank you so much. I, it means a lot. It means so much to me. I can't tell you. So let's look at what's driving me this week. What's been driving me this week? So I wanted to share um, something with you. Have you ever had something that you know that's good for you? You know that you should be doing it and you don't or you used to do it and you stop and um, and how do you start to get back into it? How do you start to kind of pick things up and, and start doing the thing that you know that's good for you? And so one of the things that's been driving me this week has been picking up some of those practices which I know help me, which serves me. And um, one of those has been doing yoga. You know, I stopped doing a lot of things after mum passed away. And one of those things was exercise. I just had no energy to kind of do anything. So I stopped going out for a walk. I didn't run. Um, You know, I stopped doing yoga. I didn't do any of it. So, but what started to happen was my body over the um, months was just feeling more and more tight and more and more kind of rigid and more like lethargic. And so it, it was like at some point, it just screamed to me, will you just please do something just move do something and so that noise got louder and and to the point that I decided to do something and what I decided to do 
was take on doing a yoga video each morning. And the yoga video is like 25 minutes long. And I started with committing that I would just do seven consecutive days. So I thought, let me start small. I'll start with seven consecutive days of yoga. And then once I accomplished that, then I extended it to another seven days of yoga. So then I, you know, I think, okay, oh, let me get to two weeks. And then um, once I accomplished that, then I extended it to another seven days. Now, what I do know is that if you do something for 21 consecutive days is when you're on the verge of really ingraining it and having it turn into a habit. And and so I needed to get to that if I was going to if it was going to be a daily practice. So at the end of the two weeks, I added on a committed to another seven days. And as I was even as I was heading to D.C. last week, I was getting a plane that was a, I had to leave at 5 a.m. my house. So at 4 a.m., I was doing my yoga practice. That's what I was doing before I left. So that's never happened before but that's inside of my commitment that's a complete first for me so as I record this I'm now at 21 days and it has made such a difference to me I can't the results are just extraordinary well my body is grateful for it just the flexibility the movement and the feeling that it gives me each day I had it be easy in that it's a manageable 25 minutes a a day. If it's like an hour, hour and a half, I just don't think I could find that time. It's in my living room. I do a follow a video. I do the same one each morning. In fact, I'll start to vary it a bit now, but in the beginning I was doing the same ones each morning so that it becomes familiar. And then what I've noticed is a new discipline in my eating. So it's impacted a more positive effect on my eating which was a surprise. It's not something I was focused on or or working on in terms of that. And starting my day with yoga has increased my ability to focus and be more effective in getting things done. That's one of the other things that I've noticed as a result. It's a good way to start my day. You know, so if you have something that you know is good for you, you know it works for you, you know that you've been saying, I really want to do it. You know, my invitation to you is start with, I'll do that for three days. Then I'll do that for seven days. Then I'll do it for 14 days. Gradually build up your commitment. Then I'll do it for 21 days. You know, gradually build up your commitment. And as you're getting it done, then you can increase the number of days that you do it for. I'm now playing for 40 days of daily yoga. And, um, but now it feels like I get out of my bed and that's the first thing I want to do. I want to, you know, do yoga. Sometimes it's the second thing I do if I've got to get the kids um, lunch ready for school and stuff like that. But, um, but it's, the, it's, it's a daily practice now and bringing in practices that serve you are the things that's going to forward you in your life so I share that with you about what's driving me this week is my yoga so let me introduce you to my guest this week it's Charlene Brown Charlene Brown is the executive director of the partnership for responsible financial inclusion previously she served as a national director of Oiko Credit USA where she raised investment capital and provided development education on the microfinance and social performance to investors with more than you 35 million US dollars in assets. 
Miss Brown also worked with the Grameen Foundation, a member of the Partnership for Responsible Financial Inclusion, as a senior program officer for their Social Performance Management Centre, where she oversaw projects for microfinance institutions in sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East and North Africa. She's a graduate from Wellesley College and has an MBA from the University of Phoenix. I'm so excited to... Um, introduce you to Charlene who's gonna as well as sharing obviously her journey in terms of her work it really increases our understanding of how what about microfinance and and the importance of that in the U.S. as well as in the uh, as well as outside of the U.S. I give you Miss Brown. Charlene thank you so much for being willing to be a guest on She's Got Drive. Wonderful yeah I'm really excited to be here and to have this conversation. Great. So I um, always want my guests to start by describing their work and bringing their work to life. So, and because you're, the work that you do is really not what a lot of people come into contact with, I really think it's important for that we get clear about what you do and then I'm, and we can get into how you got into doing your work later. Sure. Yeah. So today I serve as the executive director of the Partnership for Responsible Financial Inclusion. And that brings together 10 really amazing organizations that have been at the front of bringing banking services to very low income populations around the world. And so my membership um, is present in over um, 80 countries through about 260 local partner organizations. And you know, each of them is obviously very unique in terms of the communities that they work, but their ultimate goal is to take people who have not historically had banking services or have been underserved by those services and bring them more into the system because it's a really important part of generating strong economies. So you have to have a strong banking system. If you look at the United States, Canada, the UK, any of the European nations, we all have really strong banking services, which are really fundamental to our economies. So we're trying to do this in emerging markets. And most of my member organizations have been around for three to four decades. So they've been around for a really long time doing this type of work and really trying to, again, work with low income populations. And um, that's just really important to me. I um, originally am from the Caribbean and for years wondered about the journey that my family took to come to the United States and to better understand those issues and looked at it when I was a student and realized that being able to play a, a role in this space would be an important part of my career. So mm. here I am. Here you are. Wow. So I wanted to, you, to, one of the questions that comes up for me as you describe your work is the difference between your work in the, in the U.S., as you said, which has mature financial economies, right? And, and, and yet yeah, you do work, you, your work is, is prevalent and needed in the U.S., um, and the difference between here and the difference to when it, when you're working in other, some of the other developing countries, what's the difference? A huge absence of infrastructure, uh, both physical um, as well as technical or technological. Uh, that often means that uh, there are no brick and mortar banking structures in rural Uganda or rural Botswana, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in order for you to even have some minimal access you would have to travel long distances. So many of my groups uh, go into areas like that and they bring the services to the people. And mm-hmm. so that, that minimizes 
uh, the expense of travel and so forth for someone who's really low income. Now, in the U.S. context or any developed country context, you can basically sort of step outside of a building, look around, and you'll find a bank, right? right? And most of the places where we work, if you do that, you look around and there will be no banking structure and you can walk three miles or go 10 miles and there are still no banking structures. So the vast amount of differences um, has a lot to do with just the availability Mm -hmm. of those services. And oftentimes those services are viewed as services that are for wealthier people in those societies. So the people who are at the bottom of the economic ladder really don't have that opportunity, right? So the way that you and I perhaps navigate our daily financial lives, you walk into a store, you're going to buy something, you go, oh, I don't have enough cash. Let me take out my credit card. People around the world don't really have that. The vast majority of the world's population don't have that simple, basic tool to say, okay, well, I can fill this short-term gap with the bank's money and repay that you know, in the next month, and I'm fine. If you don't have it, you simply don't have it, and that means that you go without. Right. So for a lot of my organizations, there's a very strong focus on poverty, not for all. Some of them are just simply about bringing banking services to low-income communities. But for many of them, it's about how do we remove or minimize the event of poverty, which reduces choices. Fundamentally, all of our decision comes to choices. How can I make a choice um, with access to a banking service, right? So that means I could potentially build a home, buy a home. It means I can get access to a vehicle. Maybe if I sell my produce in the local market, I can make 10 times more if I sell in the city. And if I had a vehicle, I could get there. So just small changes. And I have to say that in my experience working, um, I've done primarily most of my work in West Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, I have just heard amazing stories of how people get access to a loan, they buy a motorbike, they drive into town, they sell their produce, and all of a sudden they're making more income, they send their kid to school. Now they're dreaming of university education for their children. So just the doors that that opens up, right? Or if your child becomes sick, in most of these countries, there isn't any kind of healthcare system and there aren't public hospitals where you can go and say, okay, well, I'm sick, you know, you have to treat me, which is a right here in the United States, and at, at least stabilize me and then put me at your door. Right. It just doesn't exist. So if I don't have the financial resources, I don't have that choice. Um, and one of my CEOs reminded us of that very recently. He said, all this work that we do is about helping people to have greater choices in their lives. Right. And that's what it fundamentally, I think, boils down to. My group is very much focused on the responsible side to make sure that the services are delivered responsibly to the populations that we're serving. And that means that people should have basic understanding of what they're doing. If I'm giving you a loan, you should know the interest on that loan. You should know how that interest is calculated. You should know what I'm doing with your personal information, one of the big discussions that we're, of course, having in in today's um, world. So just ensuring that clients that we're educating our clients as we're moving them along this economic continuum, that they really understand and that they're learning, you know, why savings is important, you know, um, how do I use a loan responsibly so that I don't become over indebted? Right. Uh, so trying to make sure that we do the best that we can do by our clients, because ultimately their interest works in the long run for the, all of our member institutions and that they can be around for the long term and they can be profitable and continue to serve the populations that are working in the field. Right, because otherwise they're so vulnerable to, I was going to say the sharks, those, right? But right. they really are. You put are, those people right. who are at risk 
at the greatest risk if right. you're not necessarily doing all those responsible things. Right, right. Which we've seen in the U.S. We've seen in the U.S. and we've oh. seen all around the world. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. In, in the developed world where we, yeah, where we've learned our lesson from 2008. Or oh, have we? Is the question. <laughs> I, I would argue that we perhaps haven't. I think, you know, we live in a society. So, you know, professionally, my work is focused internationally. Domestically, I actually do a lot of volunteer work. Mm-hmm. working with low-income populations and um, families here in the United States and my local area here um, to sort of help people strengthen their financial well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and that work sort of shines that light for me on just the challenges that we have here in this country and the lack of knowledge uh, among people. And I can't even say, you know, young people, you know, the demographic group um, of the program that I'm involved with you know, reaches all ages and people are still trying to learn how to navigate their finances and how to make better financial decisions. And I've got, you know, young people in the program who are trying to avoid the pitfalls that their parents um, had to go through. Um, So it's just, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, just having, you know, observed how sometimes people are blacklisted um, from the financial services system here in the United States, uh, the client that I currently work with um, in this program is an example of that. Uh, we had to figure out how to get her bank account because she's essentially has been blacklisted. And now we're trying to figure out how to undo all of that. Right. Not understanding the implication of being shunned by the financial system, what that means for you, again, in terms of choices and opportunities. It's, it's huge. Um, whether you're doing it domestically or internationally. Yeah. And the education is everything in this mm-hmm. regard. And at the same time, and oftentimes if you don't have it, you see, we, you inherit, we often inherit our lessons around money from our family. Absolutely. Situation. Absolutely. And unless you take yourself out and you're, you're really looking to seek external help, then you can stay stuck in that and repeat patterns. Exactly. That that's precisely what you see in, in many families that, it, you know, the, the young woman I work with, she's a part of a mother-daughter set in this program. So the mother has a different financial mentee and I have the daughter. And it is because they've both gone through this very strenuous financial um, process. Uh, you know, they lost their home. They had to live in a hotel. I mean, these are real hardships. And, right. you know, what it does and how it scars you as an individual and how it inhibits your ability to dream like that's what we shouldn't be doing, right? That's just all the wrong sides of right. you know bad financial um, products. And so now having to like teach her uh, about like really how you think about credit and how to utilize um, you know her financial identity because that's what it is, right? If you can be blacklisted through a system, it's because you have been identified as someone who isn't trustworthy of the system. Yes. Um, and, you know, ta- teaching her the importance of savings and getting her to think about, you know, five years out, you know, what would you like to do? Where do you want to be? Where, you know, how do you see yourself? How do you see life for your son? Asking her these questions. And we've recently gone to an exercise and I saw her struggling. Um, and it was really interesting because we had ran her savings numbers um, for, the, for this year. And she was really in awe of what she could save if she just stayed disciplined. And so I said, let's multiply that by five. And so then she's been, she's like, wow, that's, you know, that's a lot of money. It mm-hmm. would be a lot of money. Uh, 
And I said, yeah, so what would you want? To, and then she could be able to dream. But I think she's been in such a space of not having um, that when I initially asked a question, it was like, why is she asking me this question? I can't think that far out. Um, but once I said to her, you know, if we just stayed on this track, you know, and the, and the path that we have her on is actually uh, fairly conservative because she's got breathing room in her budget. Mm -hmm. If we just stayed on that, here's where you would be. Now, what would you do? And then all the ideas start to flow out. And it was just, I was like, this is why we plan. And this is why we do all those things to build discipline in our financial lives and build financial health and resili resilience. Um, so now we're, you know, now she's saying, well, what about retirement? She's asking, you know, and I'm like, these are the good questions that you need to ask. <laughs> exactly. We're on our way. We're on our way. But the thing is, what you're, I love what you're speaking about is now she's creating a future. She can step mm -hmm. inside of a future because okay. when you are constrained with money, then you are literally living day to day and you're getting through your day and trying okay. to survive it versus okay. now she can, she's looking up and out which is just mm -hmm. so wonderful, so, so wonderful. But there's, there's many, 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 many people who are like, and it, and, it, and it doesn't mean, it isn't even connected to that they're not working or anything. People are working right. and not right. making good financial decisions or working and can't make ends meet or, yeah, right. so, or got into debt studying. I mean, it's just such a whole world out there, right? Yeah, so, and having to yeah manage all of that exactly. It's a lot. You're really giving, and you, and you give people back their life in that. Actually, is what I can hear. Yes, and that to me is you know my doctor. Um, my sister's a nurse, and she works with uh, my primary care physician at the hospital. And so you know when we go and she's like, oh, he's like your sister's so amazing. She's saving lives. This is the way he puts it. And you know I often like yeah yeah you know I I create these new ways of people to think about you know what they're going to do with their financial well being through the organizations that I work with. Yes, I am saving lives. And she's like, no, I save lives. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it is quite funny. I'm like, yeah, that's one way of thinking about it. But you know. Even the ability to, to, to dream, if you can give someone that or help them to, to get there, in a way you are actually, you're saving them their future selves, right? Yes. And to me, that, that, that has so much power. Yeah. That yeah. really has so much power, particularly for the next generation, you know, and how they take it forward. Exactly. Exactly. And, the, the, and in my experience of working with individuals, when we vision the future, and where we want to be that impacts who we're being in the current day yeah. because we're making choices about what am I doing that's going to take me towards that future uh -huh. and and you know once we I do that work with say with my clients it's sort of like is this as a, a point of a decision when you're at a decision point it's like is this thing you're about to do taking you towards where you want to be or away from it and if it's taking you away from it then it's a very simple <laughs> decision <laughs> hey. right Exactly. It's a very simple exactly. decision to make. So that's big. It's huge. It's huge. So, get, mm -hmm. so now I, I want to kind of take a step back and find out how did you get into this? I mean, you're clearly passionate about it. Um, you know, I can feel your passion. I can hear your passion. So how did you get into it? Where did you, when did you start and, and how did you start? I guess I started with my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
No, and in, in truth, uh, so, you know, I come from an immigrant family. You know, my family came, we lived in New York. You know, mom worked really hard to provide for us. She was a single mom. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we ha- always ha- had our extended family around. Mm-hmm. But it was not a childhood without challenges and difficulties. You know, we had to, a time, you know, when she lost a job or the economy was down, it meant very different decisions. Again, fortunately, I think we had... Um, the foundation of our extended family to sort of help us out at times. And for me, you know, I was always sort of like, okay, well, why did we come to the United States? You know, what was our, our family's history? And the more I learned about that and the, the decisions that my nation, Jamaica as a nation, made and sort of the economic hardships that um, followed as a, a result of government decisions and what that meant for my family, I thought there has to be a better way. Like, and how do you become a part of that solution, right? Uh, And so I sort of always sort of had that in the back of my mind. Like, I want to do something where I'm helping people so that they don't have to leave their home countries to come to a foreign land to make a new life. And as great as this nation is, it's a huge change for an immigrant family. And so I went into school and discovered economics. And then through economics, I discovered microfinance. And I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to do what this guy, Muhammad Yunus, and all these other people are doing. And how do I figure out how to get there? So it took me a number of years to make that, um, that leap. I actually went into uh, social responsible investing first, which was very much about how to get corporations to be the best corporate citizens that they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know, looking at their behavior both at home as well as internationally. And I had been concerned about what corporations do when they're outside of the country because their behaviors often change because they're not playing by the same rules, right? Mm. And uh, through social responsible investing, one of the focus of that is community investing, which is focused on both domestic community investing but also international. And that tied directly into microfinance. So I couldn't have planned it you know, this kind of wavy path, but it definitely created an opportunity for me to learn more about the space. I'm curious about how many black women participate in this microfinance space. You know, if you're going to a microfinance conference, what are the chances of you meeting someone like you? So this is a very tricky question to answer. And here's why. I've had this conversation with um, the one young black woman who is at my current um, place of employment. Uh, if you look at uh, microfinance, uh, in the countries where we are working, where we're operating, the vast majority of the employees will be from that country. Right. So you will absolutely find people of color, you'll find black people present in those areas. Um, if you look on this side, so this, you know, where you're operating in the United States or Canada or the UK or any of the European nations, right? We're few and far between. Um, I am often in the, I'm the often the only black woman in the room. Sometimes I've been the only woman in the room, regardless of color. But particularly here in the United States, um, looking at this side where it's not a field-related function, mm-hmm. um, I'm very often still in the minority status. Um, so there are not many of us, and consequently. Uh, when you do go into, you know, a workplace and there are maybe three of you, you talk, right? It's 
just sort of natural. Yes. And particularly for younger women, they're like, you know, gosh, like you'd be, I would think more of us would be here. Like this is something that I would think we would care about. And I think the lack of diversity that I often see on this side of the spectrum, because again, in the field, you see it, uh, I think is a function of, you know, where we focus our efforts once we have access perhaps to a college education and the opportunities that are open to us. And it, particularly, I think, for people who are coming out of a situation where your family um, doesn't have financial means and you are the first, right? Mm-hmm. You perhaps choose more lucrative careers to go into because the reality is that if you go into the nonprofit world, you end up making a lot less money. Right, true. And so some of it is um, explicable, but I do feel that perhaps more effort needs to be made to bring greater diversity into this space. Um, and I say that because at times when I'm sitting at the table and I hear you know, certain types of conversations, it feels very much like that's your experience and the you're being the collective you're who doesn't look like me. Yes. Um, and it's based on your values. And from where I sit, that doesn't make sense. So I sometimes feel like having more of us at the table would be really helpful because it would give greater visibility into what we've lived the life that you're trying to solve, right? Right. That that challenge is something that you're trying to, we have actually come from that experience. And so by virtue of that, I often feel like our, I hate to say we have more to offer in solving some of these challenges, but that is the way that I ultimately feel. And I, I feel that at times we're imposing our, Western perceptions of how life should be and how cultures and people should interact right. of groups that don't interact like us. Given the uniqueness of, of what you're doing in your position, like what do you rely on for yourself, your internal like guide? What do you rely on when you're faced with conversations like that, when you're sitting at the table thinking, this is, I don't know, I don't know what they're talking about because this has got anything to do with my experience. You know, what do you rely on in those moments and what are you drawing on, given that you are often yeah. in the well, in UK, US, in Europe, in, mm-hmm. often in the only one? Well, I've learned a lot about emotional intelligence over the years. And um, it is, I have to say that my, my nature, like my inherent nature is not very calm. Um, so I've, I've had to do work from a very young age to establish calm. And um, I think, you know, now people tell me like, oh, you're like the calm in the storm. Like you don't seem to get upset. You know, like I'm calm. Uh, And so I do draw back to that. And there are times when I can get frustrated and I feel it in my voice or in my throat, how it's rising up, that heat. Um, But I do try to rely on that. And I do try to sort of offer them that opinion. Uh, And sometimes it, it leads to a really fruitful conversation. And then other times people are so, I think, stuck in their view of the world um, and seeing it through their lens and again, through their cultural perspective that they can't move away from what they're saying. But for me, my job is to put it out there and let it be and let you sit with it. And if it, it, if it influences, great. And if it doesn't, then I'll keep going on because ultimately I know that this isn't going to be a perfect process, right? right. It's going to be imperfect as anything else in life. And I'm going to do the best that I can to help as many people as I can to move up the ladder through whatever it means. So whoever is going to receive the message and try to utilize that information in a helpful way, it is yours for the taking. 
And if you want to go down some other route, that's also your choice. Right. Um, you have to, I think, at some point real, realize, and I've come to this point in my life, where I'm like, I don't control everything and I don't control everyone. I control me. Yes. And so I focus very much on that. I want to come back to your family, actually, and the influence that your family, your growing up and your background had. You've, made, you've talked about um, the direct correlation to the experience of being an immigrant family and getting curious about this whole area around financing. And we've talked about the wider community. I'm wondering what were the kind of family lessons or family values that that, uh, that you live by today, that guide you, that inform who you are, that give you the drive that you have? Yeah. Um, I was, of course, taught to work very hard for whatever I wanted. My mom used to have this expression. Um, she's, you know, I think she still uses it, but not so much. Um, and I'm going to say it as she would say it. If you want good, you know it's half a run, which basically translates into if you want good, having good things to happen to you, your nose has to run. And I think it, I actually originally thought it was something that we brought from Jamaica, but I think it's something that they they came to the States and made up, like this this expression. And it was because, you know, in the middle of winter, harsh winters in New York, you know, you're going to the, the bus stop in the morning to catch the bus to go to work, you know, super early in the morning, it's freezing cold. And you, there is this thing where if you're standing out in the cold, your nose starts to run. Right. And so it's this idea that you've got to suffer and struggle for that which you really want, if you really want it that badly, and that it won't come to you easily. And so I have used that line. People look at me like, what? What did you say? <laughs> um, I've used that line for many times in my life. Like, ah. And I explain what it means. And it really is about perseverance. Yes. Um, and so that, I think, is something that I, I've always brought with me. And when I'm tired and I feel like, oh, I just don't know where I'm going to get the energy for that thing, I just, you know, I draw in and I'm like, okay, well, what's my next best step? Like, what's next? Um, and so I really sort of, I, I come back to that. And, and I have to say that I've complimented that expression mm-hmm. with um, there's this really powerful image. And I think part of it is my personality and how I receive information. But there's this um, powerful image from Nanjing, China, um, which is Sun Yat-sen's mausoleum. Mm -hmm. And the way that the mausoleum, the mausoleum is at the very top of this very long set of stairs. And the story behind the stairs is like, I don't know what the exact number is, but I always say it's like a thousand. And so the story is that you climb these stairs and at certain points, the stairs become these long platforms. And it takes a lot of energy to get to the very top. Mm. But when you get to the top and you look down at all the stairs that you've climbed, you don't see the detail of the stairs. On your way up, all you can see are the tiny steps that you have to take. But when you get to the top and you look down, all you see are like, maybe there's like 10 platforms. You see these big platforms. And evidently, it was structured that way because whenever you're going through anything in life that's worth pursuing, all you see are these tiny little steps you have to take to get to the top. Like you can look up and it seems so far away and you see all the details. And then you get there and you look down and you're like, you don't remember every single incremental thing exactly. you did. Right? So I've got that, you know, if you want to go to Noah's have to run. And that <laughs> in moments of struggle where I'm like, where did I get the energy? I turn to this, this image and I actually keep it on my computer 
because there are times when I physically have to like literally go and look at the stairs. I'm like, okay, what's my next stairs? Nice. Nice. What's my next step? And know that every, and sometimes we don't always stop to, we don't even recognize that um, the steps are so tiny. We don't even recognize there is a movement and you've got to recognize, you've got to acknowledge the movement forward because you think it's only yeah. at the money just done. Da, da, da. So, yeah, but are you yeah. moving forward and you are. And keep, mm-hmm. it, and, and keep it moving. To the- but I think the other thing from a family perspective um, that has really, that really has shaped me is that I was always made to feel like I was special. And I think maybe even more so, I don't know, maybe it's all families. I, you know, I kind of feel like maybe in more so in, in families where you don't have financial resources, where things are a struggle. Mm-hmm that that's really important for kids. Um, it's, I, I now laugh because I, I often say that if you hear my mother pitch me to someone, she does this amazing, you would think that, you know, I was, you know, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. <laughs> I mean, like, the way that she sells me is this, this amazing light where it's like, oh, she can do everything, which of course is not true. Right. Um, but as a child, I was also made to believe that I could do anything. And that, I think, for kids, go a really long way, right? It's, it's like if you tell a child that you're going to be a failure, you're going to be a failure every single day, but they're going to ultimately believe that. Right. If you tell them you're going to be a rock star, they're going to ultimately believe that. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, for a very long time, you know, I thought I was like the best thing because my mom told me that. <laughs> um, and then I got into um, high school and I did some competitive programs there. And I was like, oh, crap, there's a lot of special people. <laughs> um, and, you know, you go into college. But what that does is that by then you're, you're, you, you've got this foundation of confidence that you can't unwind. Yes. So even if you're not the best at every single thing you then find the way to be your best self. Yes. Um, and I just, I, you know, I oftentimes think back to that and I'm like, you know, sometimes we give her a hard time because she was strict and, you know, but she actually did a really amazing job with us um, and making us feel like, you know, we could succeed. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of power in that for me and I try to pass that on to my daughter. It's great because you, you said, you know, once this ingrained, once it's in your foundation, you can't, you can't undo that. And then right. that, that has you, um, e- even from a, from an unconscious level is having you go, I'm special. I can totally rock this. Exactly. I do a lot of, I try to do a lot of mentorship with my interns. I usually bring on a lot of interns in my work, mm-hmm. um, over the years. And I try to do a lot. And I, and I talk about my career and the path that I've taken and how, the only thing that I, I now commit to is building my personal brand. That's the only thing I commit to. Is this going to help me in some way to learn, to grow, to expand my talents, my horizons? Right. The rest of it, you just never know. And so, you know, the example I, I always give them, you know, I, said, I say, do your very best. Make sure that you're always operating as, as, as your best self and mm-hmm. do the job that you intend to do. And, you know, the vast majority of my work experiences, when I have said I'm leaving, I have been told, no, you're not. You need to reconsider. And that's the place where I think professionally, especially when you're young, you want to be right. Right. Um, and and then I said to them, you know, like, 
the way that my career evolved, I couldn't have planned it. And a lot of it was just about being who you are, being in the right place in, in time, and being able to, again, recognize the opportunity. Right. And so my journey to Oiko Credit as an organization, I took a job that was like my first real job in microfinance. Um, I went into taking on responsibility and found that Oiko Credit was a client of my old firm. And they were really unhappy. And so I said, you know, this is what you've been promised. A, B, and C are not going to happen, but D, we're going to try to strive through. And I, I, I was authentic to myself. I was like, here, I can make this happen for you, but here are the things that were overpromised. And I'm sorry that that was done. I'm going to fix this. And I'm going to turn this around. Right. And so I did that. And as a consequence of simply doing my job, right, um, I was asked to sit on their U.S. board. And then their executive director was um, getting ready for retirement. No one on the board realized that my background had originally been in investment, in business development. I was brought onto the board because I knew I could create this work in the field. And I could tell the social story and help to sort of give vision to that. Right. And so all of a sudden, you know, we're having real conversations around the details, around the investment, the investor strategy and business development and marketing, you know, all these things. And I'm happy to participate in these conversations because it goes back to sort of my first real experience and you know what I used to love and get excited about. Right. And all of a sudden, like all eyes are on me and they're like, well, you should really think about applying for this job. Right. I couldn't have put that together. No, you couldn't. Have. And it all worked out. So, um, Flexibility is something that I try to impart because I've got a lot of type A interns. <laughs> um, and I'm like, oh, I see myself in you. Right. <laughs> the old version. Right. Um, and so I try to sort of teach them, like, keep your eyes open. No matter what you do in life, even if it's a volunteer gig, you never know who you're going to meet exactly. and how that person can, can shape your life. Um, so just go, whatever you do that you love and what gives you energy, pursue that. Because in some way or form, it's going to give back to you. So. I am going to end on that note. That's powerful, <laughs> right? It's good. That's powerful. Thank you. Yeah. So, Absolutely. That was amazing. Thank you so much for... Well, thank you for having me. This has been a really lovely conversation. I'm glad I get to tell this part because I needed some energy today. <laughs> I'm glad that you're leaving energized for our conversation. I certainly am. Just thank you so much for, for being a guest on, on She's Got Drive. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much for that wonderful interview, Charlene. It was just so great. Um, and now we move on to Courageous Moments. Charlene, I wanted to ask you, what has been a courageous moment for you in your life? I took off about a year from work to sort of step back and give myself some time to think about what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course that meant giving up a job that was very secure. I remember my mom kind of lecturing me at the time I was in my, my mid twenties, um, mid to late twenties. And so I had, you know, a job in the investment world where I often came home with the town car if I worked late at night and I, I traveled to work, you know, in the U S Mm -hmm. And, you know, for us as an immigrant family, I had arrived, right? You have a nice, secure job. It pays you well. You're treated well. What more could you want? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the idea of giving all of that up 
to go to Cuba, which is partly what I had wanted to do since I was in college, but couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. And I still wanted to go. That was sort of a really hard decision. And my feeling was that I was young enough to come back from it if it was a really bad mistake. Right. But that I needed to sort of seize the moment because when would I be my 20s again? I left the job. I had organized my finances and so forth. Everything was um, well organized. It wasn't like I was leaving bills behind. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a great experience um, from a number of different standpoints. So, so I met one of my closest friends there who lives in London and she and I are still um, very close till this day. I'm actually the, the godmother to her son. I learned a lot about Jamaican history and Cuban history and how those two things were intertwined. My grandmother had always told me stories about Jamaican um, history and, and Cuban history and how, you know, we sort of had these exchange programs and they were done away with, you know, post um, Fidel Castro's um, taking power. Mm -hmm. But and, and the impression that I had historically received was that like every single Jamaican came home and every single Cuban went back to Cuba. And that's not true. And so it, it goes a long way to sort of help you to realize that you always have to, you know, test assumptions when people say everything is this way or everything is that way. It's not always true. And sometimes we're sold that perception. It also contributed to, I think, my, my ability to segue into international development because I had spent time in a country in, in, in a context, you know, working and on building my language skills. So when I came back, I found that I was very attractive to employers in the international development space because I had comfort being outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that they tend to look for when you're in international development. They want to make sure that you can go overseas and sort of represent the best of the organization and not make cultural faux pas. Right. And so I was sort of ready for that. In addition to, of course, the experience that I had before, really sort of laid the foundation for that transition um, into international development and into microfinance. I consider that to be my brave moment because it really just took a lot of guts for me to sort of step back. Next year, I'm actually planning to do something very similar. I kind of feel like I'm at a point in my career where I need to step back and evaluate. Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking and planning about how do I give myself that time? Because oftentimes when you're in the middle of just living and breathing a job and, and you have a family, it takes up everything and consumes you. And you can feel yourself within yourself that something isn't complete. But we often don't give ourselves the time to sort of step back and say, OK, well, what next? What do I, what's my next passion? And I want to live by my passion. So planning a little bit of an exit next year um, so that I can, again, live my passion. Wow. Thank you so much. Because the courage is, a, it does take a lot of courage to walk away from, as you said, that quote unquote, you've arrived really moment for giving up, given your history, your background and to leave that behind and then take this leap of faith and then, and it pays off, you know, is yes. what I get. Yes. It's really pays off in so many ways. Yeah. In and so you can ways. always see it. And I think that that's important that sometimes you do have to walk by faith mm -hmm. and, and just be open. Yeah. And I, I again, I, I think that's something that as, as women we struggle with, but more broadly as a society, I think it's something that we struggle with. Right. Yes. Yes. I do believe that um, these moments of courage, as I share, talk about them as heartfelt moments, the moments that where we step um, forward on behalf of ourselves or on behalf of others. And I do feel like that they, it, there's always a gift in there and we don't always know, as you say, what the gift's going to be until we come back maybe exactly. <laughs> until exactly. after the fact, but 
Thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, so we're now going to move on to the um, Shirley, I have a question, which is the um, part in the podcast where I answer a question from a listener um, about their life or, you know, how they are taking on their life or um, an action as if they were, as if I was their coach, you know. Now, the truth is, um, if I was coaching you, then what we'd be doing is that I'll be asking you more questions than telling you. You know, I've been finding out more and inquiring because the wisdom is in the in my client. Um, but this is an opportunity for me to share perspective on in terms of the questions that, that you might be holding. And um, and so this week's question comes from Sonia. And uh, Sonia's question is, you know, when you're making a transition in your life and something that you want, how do you, what tools can I use to take those steps and how do I keep the momentum? on the things that I desire. So how do you, when you're in a transition um, in life, what tools can I use um, to take certain steps and how do I keep the momentum? This question stood out for me because one of the things, this is like a key question, like if we want something in life, if we want to have, we want to try, we can see something for ourselves that is, not where we are and we want to move towards it how do we start to do that and um there is there, i'm going to speak to like three core steps and then something underpinning and i'm going to point to something so the first thing is you know my question would be are you clear about where you want to be are you clear about your vision for yourself of what you want it to look like you know have you started to get that um clear for yourself are you clear about the outcome that you want because it is so important to have a vision and it's so important to start to have an outline of where you want to be because it's it's like the difference between walking out of your house and having a destination in mind and then you can think well am I turning left or right or walking out of your house, standing outside and saying, I actually don't know where I'm going. Let me just turn right and see where that takes me. You're going to be much more intentional and get better results if you decide ahead of time that's where I want to go. So you don't need to know exactly how to get there, but what you do have to have a sense of the di- the des- the direction. You don't have the destination fully defined, but you need to have a sense of the outcome. So that would be the first place, you know. And then the next thing we're to do is to generate a list of actions, like put together a list of actions that start to, what the possible list of actions that you could take to start you move you closer to where you want to be. Now, for, at first, you can just like brainstorm them and then you create these actions and then you start to focus in on what are those things that I could do? What's the first next step? And then there's the second next step and the third next step. And then the third thing I would say is once you start taking the steps to keep stepping, if there's been a phrase that stood out for me 
in doing She's Got Drive, the amount of women on this podcast who say keep it moving. And that is one of the most fundable mental things if we're going to get to any momentum is you take actions and you keep taking actions and you're taking actions not looking for the result. You're just taking the actions that you know would move you closer. If I do this, it's a step forward versus a step back. So you keep taking those actions. I mean, there is an element of trust in it. But at some point, you get to a place which I call magic, and that's momentum. You know, when you, when things will, you'll start to feel the energy of it going your way, and it always kind of works this way. What happens where people um, tend to not produce the results that they want is they start taking actions and they stop taking the actions because they think that it's not working so the results ain't looking the way that they expected it to it's not coming fast enough so I'll stop but it is in the stopping that is the problem you know so first of all formulate to create what you want get clear what you want second make a list of all the things that you could do to move you closer third take the action and keep taking the action to keep taking the action do not stop taking the action and then four is trust faith trust faith trust faith faith trust trust faith trust faith faith trust trust faith um and keep it moving keep it moving i want to point you sonia to um episode 34 and everyone else um Episode 34 of this podcast where I it was about reviewing your 2018 goals. And in there, I introduced the operating states as a model. That is a fantastic model for your for causing results in your life. And in there, there was a free PDF as well. So I'm referring to that because, it, you know, it's, it's such a great model. It's not mine. I didn't I didn't design the model. I've just kind of pulled it together and I've kind of reduced it. So it's more user-friendly in the way that I've I've put it in in the um, pdf have a look at that and see what you do with that and then good luck with causing your life right good luck I hope that you've been inspired to shift gears in your own life you can hear that with Charlene the strength of her commitment to people being empowered around their finances and how that purpose is really driving her in her work and leading to like unpredictable opportunities in her career like you know that that you know the the those are the kind of magical moments where you're in your purpose and then something shows up for you that is totally aligned with who you are and then you can step into it you know, I'd love to hear from you. You know, please send me your reviews. Send me your messages. Let me know what you're getting from She's Got Drive podcast. Head over to iTunes and rate and review the show. Five-star reviews. Get, we'll get a shout-out in the next episode. And also, you can contact me on at Shirley McAlpine at Instagram or my website, ShirleyMcAlpine.com. The links are in the show notes for that. And I really appreciate everything that you um, say and send to me. I really do. She's Got Drive is produced by Cassandra Voltolina. The music is by the awesome all-female band Blonde. The song is called Circles. 
And until next time, go well and stay well.